0: Hello everybody, this is Two Guys, Five Movies, this is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasberry. This is Frank Pelicone. And today we are going to do something a little different, where this is the first time we're going to actually do a contemporaneous review of a movie. Uh, last week we went to go see Quentin Tarantino's newest picture, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we are going to go ahead and talk about that movie today, and we are also going to kind of contextualize the movie um, before and after the review in terms of Tarantino's uh, history um, filmography um, so Frank we did this I think way back in episode five the Palm d'Or episode mm. where we went ahead and talked a little bit about just our general history with Tarantino right and um, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of that again where I, I, I have a feeling that Tarantino is probably pretty important to you overall, like, in terms of just your general age, with a lot of people I think sure. our age is important, so I just kind of wanted to get a sense of, like, you know, um, first, how did you discover Tarantino, um, what were your feelings at the time, and what have you thought of him since with these different releases
1: throughout the past 25 years? So, I learned at Tarantino through a friend of mine, um through Film Threat Magazine, I think, or one of those, like, cinema magazines from the early 90s um, when Pulp Fiction was in production. Um, and so watched Reservoir Dogs and was really blown away by what at the time I saw as, like, really, like, brilliant dialogue and, like, great plotting. And I, I love the, the shift in time and how... You kind of see sort of the end of the movie before you see the beginning of the movie. Um, and then <clears throat> I would say this watching Pulp Fiction in a theater is like one of the most definitely one of the seminal moments in like my movie going like life. Um, especially for seeing something in a theater where I just felt like absolutely completely, I don't know, like enraptured by it as a film. Um, yeah, I can understand that. I would have told you probably for the better part of like two decades that Pulp Fiction was one of my favorite movies of all time. I enjoyed Jackie Brown when I saw it. Although I think that because I was expecting like basically like Pulp Fiction 2.0, I didn't appreciate it as much as I have come to appreciate it. Um, absolutely like completely in love with Kill Bill when it came out, um, both, you know, part one and part two. And I kind of think of them as one solid movie. Like, I don't really separate the two of them. Mm -hmm. And then sort of like downhill from there, um, did not enjoy uh, Death Proof at all. Like, I thought Death Proof was really bad when I saw it. Uh, Felt the same way about Inglorious Bastards. Um, Disappointed in Django. Like, I thought Django was just too long. And I wasn't, like, necessarily a fan of the subject matter. Um, and then absolutely, like, can't stand Hateful Eight. Um, but then, you know, kind of... Sort of rediscovered my love of, like, Tarantino as a director. After watching Once Upon a Time. Um, just a really, like, great, like, moving experience where I came out of the theater and... Really could have probably gone back in and watched it again. Which is pretty rare for me. Um, honestly... I think only, like, maybe Fury Road in the past, like, five or six years have I walked out of a theater and thought, like, I want to go buy a ticket for this movie again. Mm -hmm. And I really felt that way about Once Upon a Time. Um, I think in terms of, like, how I watch movies, I think he's one of the most influential directors to me. Mm -hmm. Um, From a personal level, just because, like, his love of more, like, obscure and, like, niche, like, B... B-movies and, like, forgotten movies and genre movies especially, like, I I kind of feel like he's a kindred spirit to me in that respect. Um, but I've sort of found, like, some of his stuff more problematic as I get older. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I were talking this about this via text the other day, and it's, like, what I found exhilarating and innovative, you know, as, like, a 16-, 17-, 18-year-old kid, I kind of find, like, tiresome today in terms of, especially early on, and specifically Reservoir Dogs, but also Pulp Fiction to a point. Like, the way the dialogue is phrased and just the way that it feels forced, I guess. I don't know. Well, I... Like, I find Pulp Fiction to be... I still enjoy Pulp Fiction. I've seen Pulp Fiction in the past... 12 months maybe yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't I, watch it again for this but.
0: Right. Yeah I think we both watched kind of like A couple of the same movies over again Because since last week you've watched a number of Tarantino movies over again I have I've watched a number over again And <clears throat> I mean I've been I've kind of thrown myself into Tarantino so much this week In terms of reading about him Reading about his movies um, Because we had anticipated this become a retrospective a little bit right. uh, As we were doing this and I, um, I've done so much research and watching videos and interviews and all those kind of things this week that my wife is sick of me um, and doesn't want to talk about Tarantino over <laughs> again. So um, I, I just watched Paul Fiction the other day. And I, here's what I think is like in hindsight now, like Paul Fiction was like the pivotal movie in my life, which I've said in a previous podcast is like me and uh, Mike Bledsoe, who was on the Goonies first watch. Want to go see that when we were fourteen years old, and like you said, I, I've never been enraptured like that in a theater yeah. up until that point, and I don't, I don't know if I ever have been again. I'm close to it maybe, but it's like at that age, it's so pivotal. Um, I had never seen a movie like that, and I never seen anything that'll cause such conflicting emotions in me, and that included laughter, like a joy at such awful things like you know i mean i I really the one i think about when bloodstone i went to go see it for the first time time—is the marvin scene in pulp fiction where it's like you're shocked and horrified and you're laughing at the same time and i think tarantino has one of the things that he captures in his movie so well at times is making you feel those conflicting emotions um whatever those emotions are and that was like but from that point it led me into elmore leonard and in reading interviews with Tarantino it led me into and Elmore Leonard led me into Kane and Chandler and Hammett and which led me into classic literature and those kind of things and it's like in a lot of ways it's like a lot of my life is as dumb as it sounds is kind of owed to Tarantino in some ways like I, I don't think I study English probably without going down that literature movie route, you know, which was really inspired. I had watched a lot of classic movies by this point, but I hadn't been, uh, uh, hadn't like found something I was so passionate about, I guess. Um, and I feel similarly to you, I think about like his movies and stuff like that. I didn't see Reservoir Dogs until a week after Pulp Fiction came out, but, um, Jackie Brown, like I loved because I was in love with Elmore Leonard by that point. And Kill Bill, I loved, and um, we talk about Kill Bill, Christ, that was episode uh, uh, six. Um, What's the context of that episode, do you remember? That was the uh, top five sequels <coughs> of the 2000s. Of the 2000s, right? Yeah. And we talk about Jackie Brown in episode 16 now, we're <laughs> on 42. Um, uh, uh, was that was the top a five heist movies. Um right. Which
1: feels like forever ago, even though it wasn't that long ago. I I I was thinking about this today, and I was like, "Man, that was like what, like two months ago?" Right. Yeah. Right. it's yeah. been a lot longer than that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I I also
0: felt that like his career goes downhill a little bit, um, to the point where it's like Inglorious Bastards. While I liked watching it, I've always said I when I walked away from it, it's like it left me with nothing to think about, and. That's unlike Tarantino movies up to that point for me. And then finally, like, you know, to the point where I didn't watch Django until this past week. Like, that's how much I, like, walked away from Tarantino movies overall. So, um, I watched Hateful Eight, like, a couple weeks before Once came out. Um, there's not a movie that I don't like of Tarantino's. Um, just movies that I like less. So, um... But I'm still can be really, I, I can be really critical of him at times. Um, so it's not like I'm like a fanboy or anything. But I think that point to you, like you feel like he's like kind of like you or whatever. Um, I think that's one of the enjoyable things about Tarantino, like most to me, is that even when you hear him talk now, he's a little egotistical. For oh, right. Himself. But it's like, but at the same time, it's like he's also a very confident person and he probably has every right to be in some ways for what he's done with his career. But he's also a fan like and that's what i like most about tarantino is he's still geeking out like after at at, you know 56 i think is how old he is like he's still passionate he's still like you know loves these old movies like he's still you know he's a walking encyclopedia you know of this stuff um and i i so i still really enjoy him and i felt i think you'd like a little bit more than me this movie but again like i walked out of that theater and i was like yeah i I like that like i thought it was really good um and i found myself for the first time in a long time actually thinking about a tarantino movie again like as i after i walked out of the theater like this whole week i've been thinking about once upon a time in hollywood off and on and the characters and you know meanings of different scenes and those kind of things and it's it's refreshing to um not feel disappointed in, in his movies. Right. Um, it's, it makes me happy that I... Especially like, after Hateful because Hateful eight is <laughs> such a bad movie. So let me ask you before we get into the review itself, is if you ranked the movies from, I guess, uh, eight to eight to one, what would
1: your... So I'm not including Death Proof in this? Either? Oh, is that... Yeah, right. Yeah, include Death Proof. Oh. Uh, Death Proof is the absolute worst. <laughs> I mean, I think Death Proof is... Okay. To me, it personally like it lacks all merit. Like I hate Death Proof, Um, hateful eight's after that, Uh, and then Inglorious Bastards, and then Reservoir Dogs. Although that's a recent shift, like recent shift in my head, like down towards the bottom of the, you know whatever, like his filmography. Um, Then Django is like right at the middle of the pack. Um, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown kind of like straddle a line after that because I find like really good things about both of them. Um and then Once Upon a Time is my second favorite. And the Kill Bill movies are my favorite of his, mm-hmm. uh, just because I think Kill Bill is the most complete story, really. Yeah. Where even though he does play with like the chronology of the events in the movie, like as you see him, it still like tells the entire story of the Bride from start yeah. to finish, basically. Um, it's weird because so. This week I've watched Reservoir Dogs again, Inglorious Pastors again, and Django again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did not enjoy Django when I saw it in the theater. Yeah. Uh, it felt way too long to mm-hmm. me. Um, I, like, I, when I was watching it, I felt like it was like a three plus hour movie. It did not feel like two hours and 42 minutes or whatever it is. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Like, for me, Kill Bill is always going to be the best example. Like, I think it does. I think it captures his love of, like, 60s and 70s, like, grindhouse cinema and marries it with an actual, like, strong narrative. Um, I honestly think that Once Upon a Time is maybe his best movie. Like, if I had to call a movie his masterpiece, I would say that that might be it. Um, Because it's the most human of his movies. Um, it's the least gimmicky in terms of, like, dialogue and pacing, and, I mean, even though it's got, like, its own, like, stylized twist ending, you know, it's still, I don't know, It just, um, I think it's, like, resonant, and I think it sticks yeah. with you. Um, it's hard for me to drop Pulp Fiction ever down on the list because of nostalgia, but yeah. I don't think Pulp is nearly as good as I thought it was when I was... Yeah, I... I did on mine
0: like it, it, it dropped down considerably I mean I agree Death Proof is the worst thing even though there's the elements of Death Proof I enjoy I have Hateful Eight next and then Inglorious Bastards then Django then Pulp Fiction uh then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then Jackie Brown and Kill Bill oh I forgot Reservoir Dogs that probably says something um <laughs> It's it would be uh, probably honestly after Django at this point, um, but I think what Pulp Fiction like what you were saying about the language is I think one of the things that Tarantino did was embody of stylized though it may be an American vernacular in Pulp Fiction that like was unheard of at the time, right and. I think as times have changed, I mean, it's been 25 years. Um, I think that's, I think you said it over text the other day. I think you used the word, it's not as fresh anymore. It's not. It's, and it's, it's not because, it's of Ac- a because the vernacular has changed, you know, and it's not the same time as it was at that point. And while I still enjoyed a lot of elements of that film, um, yeah, it's not as fresh as it was. And I, I think that's, <clears throat> so I don't have a problem putting it down. As of today, like, you know, I mean, I I just think things are different. I'll, I'll always have Jackie Brown really high. Like, that's just something like uh, it's just something that I really love a lot. So I'll always have it higher probably than most people. Okay, so giving that context, and I just want to establish some context of like our background with Tarantino and how we feel about him generally. I want to move into talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood more specifically now. And I do want to warn everybody that there's no way, I think, to talk about this
1: without spoilers. So, I, I think that you can do a six or seven minute like brief about just the movie in general and the filmmaking before you really have to get into spoilers. So, okay. I, I think we can do like a brief, spoiler-free. If you think you
0: can do that, then that's yeah, cool.
1: Yeah, okay. I've been thinking about it a lot over the past week because I think that... I think that seeing the movie... As pure as possible is like the best way to see it because I think that makes it the best movie going experience.
0: Okay, so I'll let you go ahead and talk and we'll do that and you kind of give your review and we'll, <coughs> when like the brief is over, I'll let you go ahead and say, like, right, I'm going spoil- to have, right, here comes some spoilers. Sure, yeah, just scream it really loud in the microphone. Right,
1: like, spoilers. Um, that's, um, that's. <laughs>
0: That's bold. Startle everybody.
1: (laughs) Um, So, in terms of, like, filmmaking, I think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his purest film from, like, a directorial standpoint. From, in terms of, like, narrative, in terms of character development, it's about the people in the movie and not so much the theme of the movie or the idea of the movie. And honestly the overarching theme is really just about self-discovery and, like, reaffirming who you are and kind of, like, losing the context of your purpose in life as you age. And maybe that's indicative of, like, how Tarantino feels as a director, Mm -hmm. you know, as he's made, like, all these, like, bombastic, ultra-violent, you know... Films that are, like, revisionist and regressive in a lot of ways. And this is, like, his least on the surface of those. But in a lot of ways, it's also maybe his most bold revision of history, I think, in some ways. Because, it's like... It, it's not so much about a specific event, but it's about, like a gradual cultural sea change from one way of being to another. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really, I think important that it takes place in the beginning and then the latter half of 1969, which is really kind of like the shift into the end of the summer. Right. And like the gritty, you know, counterculture, antihero seventies. Right. Where like a lot of his primary, um, inspiration comes from is like those movies of the 70s like stuff like um french connection and chinatown and
0: sure mean Mean streets and taxi driver movies that tarantino holds up high but he also holds up high that the decade before in terms of rio bravo and you know those kind of movies so it's like i think it certainly if we're going to psychoanalyze him a little bit like that time period is really important for him is that transition from the old western model hero to
1: so he builds two, I, I, in my opinion, his two strongest characters that he's ever written in terms of um, Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton. Um, Rick Dalton, the Leonardo DiCaprio character who's an aging former Western star who's kind of fallen on not really hard times, but he doesn't really have the same cachet he used to have when Westerns were super popular, so he's kind of fallen to playing bit parts as villains, like he's a cameo in like television shows, and his valet slash best friend slash, um, I don't know, personal stunt double in Cliff Booth, who's um, the Brad Pitt character, who's this kind of affable, friendly, loyal guy that just sort of goes along with things and kind of looks for the best in people and sort of can support other people around him, but is also, like, kind of the man's man. Like, he's sort of, like, the Marlboro Man, I guess. Sure. Kind of, he, like has, that, he has an
0: edge to him. Though. Right. Like, there's still a little
1: edge, even though he's so loyal and, and maybe And maybe a guy that has, like, some repressed regret sure. over the way his life has turned yeah. out and the decisions he's made, but doesn't let that regret weigh him down. Like, it's, like, brief. Yeah. I don't know, like fugues into some like thought of like how things could have been or how something right happened to the past um so character wise i think it's amazing um i love uh margot roby's sharon tate portrayal i think it's a really pure and innocent look at somebody who's just like a genuinely optimistic and friendly person who's kind of like swept into like the hippie nature of like los angeles in the late 60s um and is genuinely like fun to watch and mm-hmm. lovable and carefree um and then marrying all of that with you know the the events of 1969 and especially the rise of the Manson family and um you know ultimately like the events there um and then also the way that he just makes Los Angeles a character like mm-hmm. Hollywood is a character in this movie and there's a brilliant scene I, th- I would say like about two-thirds of the way through the movie where they're going out at night and all the neon lights up of all the famous late 60s Los Angeles landmarks yeah. so you have like um, and I'm not going to know any of these places but like El Coyote and um, the Taco Bell and um like the the famous steakhouse. I like I can yeah, I not right, yeah, like yeah. I'm not a huge aficionado of like Los Angeles lore, sure. but like you recognize all the names of these places and it's just beautiful the way he shoots it. And amazing, like I was watching some behind the scenes stuff this past week of him actually like someone filming him filming the movie. Mm-hmm. And you look at like modern like film and everyone is so quick to go to a green screen or a mat or digital manipulation. Mm -hmm. And this dude recreated like 1969 Los Angeles in like a flawless way. Like it, Mm. there's so many scenes that's just like these loving long shots of someone driving in a car or looking over the highway and just, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing number one from like a technical standpoint sure he's able to like pull it off but also it kind of moves you and makes you feel i guess the feeling that he has towards this time period just of this like rose colored like look at a time when things were more innocent and more hopeful and the hollywood system was still the hollywood system like it hadn't devolved into I don't know whatever it became in the 70s and yeah. then into the 80s.
0: I think it's really important to to note that despite the idea of him making LA a character and all that kind of stuff and like, you know, that he for someone who is so self-indulgent sometimes or has become self-indulgent throughout his career, maybe always was and has come become worse at times. Right. It doesn't overshadow the movie. No, he does it all through background mise en scene and establishing 100%. shots, and it, it doesn't overwhelm you whatsoever. It
1: cradles the story that's happening around right. it. It so that's that's one of my problems with stuff like I think, especially with stuff like um, Inglorious Bastards and Hateful Eight, where you can like you you can watch those movies and you can pinpoint exactly what he was watching when he made those movies or what he was watching when he wrote that movie that inspired him to make it. And I know there's like, I read an article um, a few days before we went to see this where he listed like the 10 movies you need to watch before you watch yeah, once I, upon a time. And I saw that. Yeah. And I've seen like, I I'd seen like seven out of the 10 or something. Mm-hmm. And, Like, I I get what he was saying, but... And so I was kind of afraid, like, going into it, that, man, this is going to beat you over the head. Like, here's Bullet, and here's Vanishing Point, and here's Casino Royale, and here's, like, all these things just, like, hitting you with them, and, like, look how cool I am. Look how many things I know. Here's Rosemary's Baby references, and he just doesn't do it. No. It's just, like, it's just there. And I think one of the things that I love the most about it is he's one of the few directors currently working that i know definitely films on actual film stock like all of his stuff is filmed on sure. 24 millimeter yeah. um
0: he, he, he did something else for hateful eight um but yeah almost always 20
1: but know. hateful eight is more like a play anyway like yeah. hateful eight is basically I, can't,
0: I, I i'm not a technical person whatsoever so i i, I think it was 70 that he does for Hateful Eight, but um, mm. I, I listened to him talk about like why he wanted to do it differently and really get wide, right? Like you know, with that movie, but uh, um, well, I think
1: so. You can get all that action, but the and, thing is,
0: is he's still an old school filmmaker, right? He, he knows all that stuff, he's you know, and then he's still
1: filming on all that. But the cinematography of it, it feels like those hazy, like sun drenched movies of the late 60s, like sure. Like you feel, it, it feels like Zabriskie Point, and there's scenes, and one of the mo, one of the coolest things about it is as they're going through Hollywood, there's marquees of what movies are playing, mm-hmm. and there's one time where it's the middle, like I want to say it's one of the August because so the movie takes place over two days in February, with like a gap that's filled in with some narration, mm-hmm. and then two days in August, um August eighth and August ninth, culminating in the night of the Tate Lumianka murders. Um, and they drive past a Romeo and Juliet marquee mm-hmm. and as they're driving past it, the way it's filmed, like the, the blues and the yellows and like the, like deep infused, like color of the scene. That's also kind of like hazy is almost a perfect emulation of the scene in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. where, um, Tybalt Yeah. And um, Mercutio end up having their duel, and it's, like, you know, it's too hot, and they're walking through, like, the square. And, like, the colors and, like, the saturation is almost exactly the same. And I don't know if that... I mean, I would have to imagine, like, that has to be intentional. Sure. But it was just, like... It doesn't matter if you don't know it, but it's amazing if you do. Sure. But he's not, like, punching you in the face with it like he does most of his stuff, and... Sure, it's, it's not, um... It's not Travolta and
0: Uma Thurman dancing. Right, exactly. And right. it's like, yeah.
1: for somebody that's so bombastic in the way he makes his movies, and even my favorite movies of his I feel sometimes can be a little overwhelming. Like, it's too much of, like, a crash of, like, his personality, like, over you. Like, it. it's a love letter in the truest sense that there's restraint. Like, yeah. he loves it so much yeah. that he's holding back because he doesn't want to, like, he wants to make it meaningful like all yeah. that stuff means something sure. but it doesn't overshadow the overall story
0: yeah and i think part of that also that 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 milieu that he's created too is the radio mm. like it's the thing that like and another like, thing that's just constant constant in this movie the radio is always playing music and ads like you know right. and,
1: and in a way where it's not like so i'm i'm hot and cold on his use of music in his films. And sometimes I think that he's... Overall, I think he's one of the most brilliant... Him and Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, are the two working directors that have the most keen ear for the perfect song and the perfect situation. Mm -hmm. But I think Tarantino falls flat sometimes because I think he pushes too hard. Like, there's definitely scenes in Inglorious Bastards like the the David Bowie the the cat people scene where I just feel like okay like why am I hearing this song at this point right um and I love that song sure and if you only saw that scene it's a really cool scene but in the context of the whole movie like it doesn't work right and there's a couple of scenes in Django where it breaks into like modern hip-hop right and it's like okay you know I understand what you're doing but it's also kind of condescending to do it that way yeah Um, I don't remember any music in Hateful Eight, I have no idea, like, if there's any actual songs in that movie, because I hate that fucking movie, but... Yeah, um,
0: there there is, there's a White Stripes song, isn't there? Is there? Yeah, like, in the snow,
1: in the beginning. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. But, everything here... God, like, what is the one song? There's so many songs that are just... Would have been on the radio at this time, and you're right, it's like, somebody leans over and turns on the radio... Or somebody's got their, you know, their high five um record player set up, you know, like Rick Dalton like puts yeah. a record on right. or Jay Sebring is like finding the proper track and you know, and like and it moves into a song. Right and the song works because it's just part of the whole scene. And he scene.
0: picked things that aren't overdone either. Right. It there's some really good stuff in. Yeah, there. But, yeah, right, but they're not but it's not overdone in film at all. Yeah. Even though it's all contemporary to that time period and would have been on the radio and is good. Like,
1: so then like to get a little bit into the sp- like I guess like just to move into the spoilers like category of the review. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not a fan of Tarantino's revisionist history. Mm-hmm. I don't I I don't hate Inglorious Bastards like I did when I first saw it, but I find it to be really crass, and I find it to be really cheap. And I kind of find Django like I like Django overall, but I also am not a fan of the whole pre Civil War. I don't know, like whatever you want to call it, like slave revolution type idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hateful Eight I think is terrible, but. I, it's one of the most brilliant revisionist history films I've ever seen, like, period. And it takes... So, just to, like, give some, like, context, it follows portions of the Manson family in the winter prior to their the murders and then the night of the murders themselves. Um, and the amazing thing about it is that The thing I think that Tarantino gets right, which I've never seen another movie do, is it demeans the Manson family, and it makes them a joke. Mm -hmm. Like, every time you see the Manson family on screen, anytime you see Charles Manson or um, Craywinkle or Tex Watson or any of these people, they're always, like, these menacing, dark, evil characters that are made to be cool. Like, they they're given power right well they and because people are kind of like afraid and mystified by like sure. the power that manson had so right. they infuse it right and this movie they're just jokes they're mm-hmm. these dumb dirty hippies living out in the middle of nowhere that have this really stupid idea for why they're going to kill people and it fails completely and it's right. by draining that act of like all of its menace and all of its power and kind of saying like this is like How life would have gone on had this never have happened it's 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 brilliant in a lot of ways and
0: and and to me it it works just on this very basic level because when you sit down and watch inglorious bastards for the first time and i do not i'm just not a fan of the 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 alt history aspect of the end of that movie this prefaces that in the title once upon a time, and it's, it's established. And I know right. that, like the, I know that it's like it says, like you know, once, once upon, upon a time, a time in, in the right, and all those kind of things. Yeah. The same thing with Django, but it's like no, Django
1: doesn't do that. It doesn't. Mm-mm. No, um, Django just says somewhere in Texas. Okay, That's somewhere in the oh, okay. and then immediately after somewhere in Texas, it's like um, wherever the town they go to okay. is when they collect the first bounty.
0: So, so I I know it does that, but at the same time, it's like I. I could go in the other reasons I don't like it. I don't care about that right now. I care about it's pound time in Hollywood. I think it that it prefaces it more as a fairy tale as it's being told not only in the title but even in the telling of the story. Sure. That it's like this kind of myth these mythological figures in some way, like even though they're completely human and all these kind of things, like they're they're larger than life on the screen in front of you and it portrays itself as this kind of fantasy of the way things used to be. Right. And there's a tone to that movie. That it completely makes sense that it would go different.
1: And also because Because they, it's
0: a fairy tale. Inglorious Bastards did not do that to me.
1: But also because aside from Goebbels and Hitler, Inglorious Bastards is using fictional people during World War Two in France yeah. and creating the story around them. And I know that like Dalton and Booth are fictional characters, but you have the juxtaposition of these sad men, like, living basically like the golden years of their career, consistently juxtaposed with images of them and like, their glory days. Sure. Like, almost every time that DiCaprio has a low moment, you get to see a scene from Bounty Law where he's at at his prime, where you get to see a scene of him... Um, what are they like, M- McClintock's fourteen fists or something right, like yeah, that? Yeah, the movie, right, like know. a scene from that, like him with like and almost mocking Inglorious Bastards with him sure. like using sure. the flamethrower to take out right. the absolutely the entire group of like Nazi yeah. generals or whatever. And the the thing that I like really hate about it in Inglorious Bastards, and this really isn't part of the, you know, Once Upon a Time review, but you have this event that was catastrophically monumental in the scope of like the world and has honestly completely changed the entire course of history. Like the events of the Holocaust have changed almost every way that like world politics works and that we view the world as a country. And so many things are different because of that. And to almost minimize it by saying like, Oh, well this one like French chick and her projectionist boyfriend and a couple of like Americans can completely alter all of like that and stop it from yeah. happening. It's 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 crass yeah. to me. I, I yeah I, I feel the I, same way about Django. Like I I like I've seen Django now twice and I saw Django in its original theatrical run in the theater and I did not enjoy it. And I watched it last night and I enjoyed it a lot more, yeah. like upon second viewing. But I also I feel the same way about like it's view of the antebellum South and slavery. It's like, it's a joke, you know? And like, I know that you're taking power away from the Ku Klux Klan by making them whatever, like the Reavers or regulators, I think is what the name of that group was that like they show with Don Johnson and making them jokes, you know, Mm -hmm. Jonah Hill's joke, whatever. But that's something that affected millions of people and still resonates today and drawing like humor from it or making it basically like a black exploitation movie like i find it kind of crass whereas this it's like sure there's there's
0: elements in it like i mean but i mean he's also trying to make a western like a spaghetti western with a black hero which i also think and, and this is the this is the thing that when you when you get into Tarantino it's like there's this give and take with the guy where it's like I think he's doing so many good things that are like sure positive and transgressive in the right ways, and then there's these things that are question marks that are left about that that are, that kind of get into his legacy at times. I do want to talk about that more.
1: Right. We, we I have some things to say yeah. about both Django and Inglorious Bastards, but and the hateful eight, unfortunately, because I hate that fucking movie. Sure, and and it's you like count how many times I tell you I hate the fucking hateful it's, eight. it's 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 been it's a, lot. Be a lot, you know.
0: And here's the thing: you hate it so much. That you can't even remember that you bitched about that white stripe song like three weeks ago to me, uh, so you've already forgotten what you, like all the terrible. things you hate about it. But I um, so yeah, so uh, getting back to once upon a time, and I, I want I do want to get into like all that stuff because he's a, a captivating and controversial figure, um, and I I, I I want to know your points on like how you think that'll play out through the years, but um. What did you think of like the performances in this? Like you've talked about like the setting and like the story itself. Like, you know, um and I guess you've talked about like, you know, some some degree of the performances, like, you know, Tate specifically, but it's like, right. you know, you've talked more about I think Booth and Dalton more in the terms of like the the characters as opposed to the acting. I
1: I I think they're Oscar worthy performances. Hmm. I think it is maybe the best performance I've ever seen from DiCaprio and definitely one of the best performances from Pitt. Hmm. I don't know who you call, like, best actor, best supporting actor, I'm sure. I, I think
0: they're both best. I think they'd probably both, if if they got nominated, they'd both fall under best actor. I think they right both
1: think. get nominated, but I think that they put one of them in actor and one of them in supporting. Mm. And my guess would be that DiCaprio is actor and Pitt yeah. is supporting. Just like, which is funny because that, like, breaks down in actually how they are in the movie Sure, too. sure. Um, they're both amazing, like, two of the greatest performances I've, two of the most captivating and human performances I've seen just in general in cinema in years, and I've ever seen from Tarantino, like, the dialogue, the humanity, um, DiCaprio particularly, in his, like, refining his love for acting and, like, re, like, reigniting his passion for just being like a human being, like not being a drunk and not being depressed and understanding that he's fallen to a point, but he can still rise back up. And like, you know, there's that scene with um the young girl when they're on the set of a uh, Lancer, um, the pilot that he's shooting, where they have this conversation and he breaks down, like describing this book, this like dime store pulp novel that he's reading about, like a Bronco buster that's fallen on hard times as he gets older. And like, their, their give and take, and then the thing... And so, one of the things that I read a complaint about was um, uh, Oliphant, Timothy Oliphant comes in and is, like, talking to him and saying, sure. like, such an honor to work with you. Like, you know, one of my heroes when I was younger, and, you know, I heard you almost got this part in The Great Escape. And one of the things that people complained about is the fact that Tarantino superimposes DiCaprio into the... Is that, um... Not Lee Marvin. It's um the other one, uh Steve McQueen, right? Yeah, Steve McQueen. So yeah. superimposes um DiCaprio into McQueen's role right. in The Great Escape, and they intercut between Olafant like talking to him and him kind of trying to like demur away from it because it's like painful to him that he didn't get that role, and him like imagining himself in it, and people have really complained that like, well, why do you do it with that, but you don't do it with um another scene later in the movie with Margot Robbie, like, watching a Sharon Tate movie and actually watching Sharon Tate. And the difference there is that DiCaprio, and this is one of the things that I think is most brilliant in the movie, and it only happens a few times, but it happens to great effect, I think, every time. DiCaprio is using his imagination and remembering his past, and he's putting himself in that role, because while Olafan is like, unconsciously like basically berating him for not getting the role like he's bringing up his old demons Mm -hmm. and his like sense of like self-failure he's like imagining like what things could have been had he have gotten that role and it's important for DiCaprio to be there because it's in his mind like that's his perspective of what things could have been whereas When Margot Robbie is in the theater watching um, Wrecking Crew Mm -hmm. and seeing the Sharon Tate scenes and reacting to him because she's so happy to see herself and see the audience react to it, that's a role that, like, Sharon Tate was really in. And you're supposed to watch that scene as being, like, that scene is actually happening. Like, the Sharon Tate character is watching the Sharon Tate actress and is just enjoying, like, the fun, you know, kind of zany slapstick like pratfall comedy of sharon tate in that movie
0: i think that's right and i also think that i think that when you're dealing with there's principles in that whole thing that are still alive to this day in that tragedy and it's like or in those murders i uh, like that i think tarantino in some ways has to know that it's like you don't replace sharon tate right in that because... Because you're it, honoring Sharon Right, Tate yeah. You're honoring. Right, yes. Like, there's, right.
1: A, there's no point in this movie where Sharon Tate is made to seem, even in the slightest bit, less than someone worthy of your memory, sure. I guess. Does that make right, sense? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Yeah, There's no dig at Sharon no, Tate. No, there's no, no darkness yeah. to Sharon Tate. She's like a light yeah. in the movie. And Margot Robbie plays it, I think, like brilliantly. Yeah. And honestly, that might be my favorite scene in the movie. Is her sitting there watching that in the theater and just like, aside from the feet, fucking hate the feet. Like I don't understand this motherfucker and his need to show me feet. Uh huh. Man, feet, female feet, like just yeah. feet everywhere in this. Dirty foot. feet. No, oh, they're always dirty. It's so disgusting. Like with Sharon Tate, she's rich. She didn't have dirty feet. She's wearing boots. So well, she's dumb. a hippie. She walks around that. shoes. whatever. Like I don't that. believe that's true. Um, I think he's just gross. Uh huh. But I love that scene. Like, I love her exuberance. I love her, you know, she's not really a star. She's just kind of like, like a C-lister, but she's got this cachet of being with Polanski. And, you know, she takes the picture with the usher in the theater. And, you know, it's just kind of like this, like, exuberant moment of her, like, realizing, like, that's me that these people are watching and that they're enjoying and that I'm, like, doing, like, something right in this mm-hmm. this part and i don't know like I, I i love it and like i i like margot roby a lot i think she's a really good actress um i think she's had some questionable roles at times but like i just think that she's amazing in this i i think this is like and people have complained that they don't give her anything to do yes but there's I think, been a lot of complaints about that but yeah. i think that misses the point of why she's there like it's a celebration of who this person was. And then this brief glimpse of like what things could have been, had you been able to move past, you know, the Manson murders because really like that, those events are, I think are the genesis of our fascination with like the macabre in terms of like crime and serial killers, serial killers, you know I mean? You get like Helter Skelter from that, you know, you get like, so many movies and so many like Mm. TV docudramas have been made, like focusing on Manson and talking about Manson and almost like to the point where he's continued his cult of personality, like beyond, you know, the arrests or whatever. And it's just like, you just minimize that and almost make it non-existent and just celebrate, you know, like the spirit of this person that whose life was cut short. And it's just, it's, it's fantastic. Like, I love it. I will say though, that, and I, we, we haven't talked about this, I actually. just thought about this yesterday. I think there is a slight dig at Roman Polanski in this movie. Mm. And I think it's when um Cliff picks up Pussycat on the side of the road and is driving her to Spawn Absolutely. Ranch. And Absolutely. And she's, like, talking about, like, offering him a blowjob. And he's like, well, I need to see some ID. Right. And she keeps trying to push it. And he's like, listen, like, I'm not I'm not willing to risk. <laughs> what does he say? Like, a, a sentence? For, for a little bit of Poontang or something right. like uh-huh. that, yeah. And it's like, I didn't think of it at the time, but when I was thinking about like how they never address like that, like the real like right. future of Polanski, but yeah, in the world of like once upon a time, like the alternate future of him, I think that's like the dig at Polanski about being like kind of a pedophile and yeah, definitely taking yeah. advantage of like young young women.
0: I, I absolutely agree think that's and
1: without ever like saying that's what it's about never shitting on polanski in the movie like he's just a guy you know Right,
0: he's just a guy who's great that's a really well-known and great director and steve
1: mcqueen kind of like saying like you know he's got something to him that like draws this beautiful sure like blonde goddess to him right like i never had a chance basically and Mm -hmm. the dude sitting there with his like sergeant pepper costume Mm -hmm. on like dancing in playboy mansion Um, I love that scene too. Like for as brief as it is, like there's something, I don't know, like absolutely like 60s about the way they're dancing and having like Mama Cass and, um, Michelle Phillips, I think, right, is the other character in it. Anyway, the Mamas and the Papas, like they're like dancing with Sharon Tate and, um, Jay Sebring, like they're like dancing Mm -hmm. with, I don't know, it's just. It's just so well crafted, and
0: and I mean, it still has Tarantino stamp- oh, right. stamps on it, like the, plenty, the, the plenty whole of end, times. and then the whole ending, especially, like you know, because it's like, like I I feel as I've been thinking about it, it's like I think Rick's story, especially, is the most controlled, personal, and mature Tarantino's ever been in a, in any of his films.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think it's one hundred percent right. Um, I'm again, like I will, and I love a lot of his movies. Like, you know, I will maintain that Rick and Cliff are the two best written characters that Tarantino has ever created. They're the two most well-rounded, you know, it actually like you you go back to fucking Pulp Fiction with, um, just because you are a character doesn't mean you have character, but that's been almost everyone that Tarantino has written outside of Jackie Brown right. for the entirety of his career is he's just making like comic books basically, or like, Absol-
0: absolutely, like, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Characters. And well, I think if you look at like, I think that's, there's two things that I think distinguish between the movies that I like of his from being like, you know, be the top of my list and like low on the list is because Kill Bill, it's like, it's a comic book movie. Like, and Spaghetti Western through and through. Right. Okay. But I think you have these really intense character moments. Sure. That are wonderfully acted throughout that. And you actually have real characters. And there's not a lot of fluff. Right. In it. Um. And Jackie Brown, I think, outside of this movie... And I know you, I think, I know you like it a lot. I mean, it's been on a top five list for you, but it's like, I I think you give less credit because it's an adaptation sometimes. Some, yeah, I do. And, 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 and I, I don't look at it that way because it's 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 a liberal adaptation and that dialogue is almost all exclusively Tarantino. The characters aren't. Right. He's, he's taking those characters, but it's like, I think the ways that those characters... In terms of, and some of us the actors, absolutely, but I, I I think his direction of those actors, I think he knows those characters inside and out. And I think the way that they speak to each other and the things that are revealed unintentionally or subtextually to each other, I think is some of the most brilliant stuff that he's ever done. See, and I think that Once Upon a Time does something similar is that it creates intense characterization of of people and relationships of right. people playing off one another. And it's like, exactly. People interacting. with each Right. Other. And I think that's the thing is it feels like some of those lesser movies. It's like, it just feels like, okay, well here's this character and yeah, there's elements. There's, there's, there's traits of this character that have been developed, but how we don't, it's not necessarily about how those traits interact with the traits of this person. Right. It's just more about, here's the pr- plot propelling and I'm going to fill it with a bunch of extraneous shit. And I think that's that dip in the in the late 2000s to like until this movie, basically, I think he's he really goes
1: all out with that. Once you get past Kill Bill, and I think if you really look at it, I think Bill, The Bride, Bud, Bud, and to a lesser extent, um, the Daryl Hannah character. Those are the ones that have the most, especially Bill and The Bride. Sure. The most development. The sure. Most, like, but I think part of that comes from the fact that The Bride is a combination of him and Uma Thurman creating a character. So Absolutely. Uma Thurman created a character for herself that she could live right. in. Sure. And Carradine just does this amazing job of infusing Bill with this Aso, like, um, Kung Fu wisdom mixed mm-hmm. with this, like, I don't know, like 70s spy villain menace, basically. But then. But also, uh, you know,
0: doting father. Right, right. You know? Doting I mean, father, right. loving
1: husband. Sure. Loving father, like, loving yeah. father to, like, a group of, like, notorious sure. assassins. Yeah. There's no characters that have any development in Inglorious Bastards. Right. Every single character ends the same way they started, basically. Sure. And the only minor exception to that is the Shoshana character, who goes from being like a scared runaway waif to being a resolute and self assured, right, resolute yeah, woman. Yeah, right. But you don't see that happen. Sure. It's just like, here's her now, here's her then, and here's her now. And you don't see anything in between. Yeah. And Django, there's some of that with him and only him, mm-hmm. where he goes, but he's never. The first scene of that movie is every other slave that's in the chain gang with their shoulders bowed and their head bent Mm -hmm. and Django's shoulders straight with the scars on his back and walking like erect and proud, you know, and that's him. Like, I'm, you know what? And it's brilliant the way he sets that up, but he's still like King Schultz is just King Schultz the entire movie. Right. And the only minor like bit of character development there is is when he decides to forgo you know his ultimate goal which is like making money off of killing people to kill Candy because it's yeah. the right thing to do. Right. Which isn't even the right thing to do in the situation. It's, like, completely self-indulgent. It is, and he apologizes for it. Right, because <laughs> right, he can't yeah. help himself. But right. every other character sure. is just the care. As soon as you're introduced to them, right. you know exactly what they are and they don't change. Sure. And I feel the same way about Hateful Eight. Like, aside from the twists in Hateful Eight, when you find out, like, these were actually the bad guys and these guys weren't as bad as you thought they were. Aside from Walton Goggins' character... Like, coming to learn... Like, accept that a black person could actually have, like, some value (laughs) and... Right. Right. Like, there's no other development in that movie. I mean, they just are what they are. Yeah. And that's why I love, like, Once Upon a Time so much is because, you know, Dalton in this, Like, DiCaprio in the span of, like, a scene can go from being, like, a self-assured like Hollywood star to being an absolute wreck. Like when sure. they when they meet Schwartz and Schwartz offers him, you know, come to Italy and film like an Italian Western and basically breaks him down where like yeah. you are not the person you were right. and every time you take a role, you move further from that. Like basically saying like Forget about the fact that you were once great because you're just shit and you're making yourself more shit every time you like Sure, every
0: time you job right. I mean every I, time I, I as, you as job soon as out. So, right, yeah. Right. As soon as I he t- like the way Pacino's character delivers that, um and that's I, I thought of wrestling immediately. Like he right. was a top baby face, and now that you're a heel and you're jobbing you're getting jobbed out all the time, right, you're not, not gonna, even
1: like a top heel, you're just a jobber that right. shows up like yeah. on random episodes sure. and gets beat. Right. Yeah. It's brilliant, and yeah. like the DiCaprio DiCaprio stepping out of the car with all the cigarette butts falling out, uh-huh. and like uh-huh. having cleaned himself up because he likes yeah. wearing this. Like it's just yeah, and it's like I, I I told
0: you this right right before we started, but it's like watching this interview with DiCaprio and Tarantino and how they developed that character is like the breakthrough Ca- DiCaprio had, which I think I really want to see it again now to like watch this. But uh, the breakthrough he had was. Tarantino kind of wanted to model the, the history of this character of Rick Dalton off of this one particular person who committed suicide um, and uh, this is a Western actor. And as uh, DiCaprio read about that actor and like why they think he did it is they think he was undiagnosed by undiagnosed bipolar and that he was um, an alcoholic because he was self-medicating because uh, he was never right. diagnosed. And once DiCaprio said that he like got that piece and he started like delving more into the psychology of it and reading more about bipolar and all those kind of things that
1: it's never stated once in the movie whatsoever. But that's kind of how he plays right. it. Right. And he and like again to that scene, which I can like one of the best scenes I think DiCaprio has ever done is in the beginning. He comes in and he's just like, "Well, I'm just going to meet with this producer. Right. I got this pilot next week. Yeah. And he goes from like mispronouncing the guy's name." Mm-hmm. And kind of, like, dismissing, like, yeah, there's some violence in those movies or whatever, to being an emotional wreck. And it's it's amazing. Like, right. in the span of ten minutes, like, mm-hmm. to have that much character development and to, to teach you that much about the personality of a fictional character sure. without ever, like, you know, coming out and saying, like, this is what we're talking about. I mean it's it's it, it's brilliant on Tarantino's part and it's it's brilliant on DiCaprio's part.
0: It is and I think of that scene I mean that whole sequence like that whole day in the life of him filming that scene right. like rediscovering that so he's good. good but it's like the trailer scene is like really yeah, powerful. Yeah, again,
1: another one of my favorite the scenes. The soliloquy,
0: moments. like, kind of like where it's you like, stupid he's, fucking idiot. Why bl- can't you
1: stop? You always say you're going to stop. If you do driving. it again, I'm going to, right. And then I'm going like, to shoot you in the, I'm going to shoot, shoot your, shoot your head off, right. or Whatever. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. Like, it's it's all. I, I mean, that's. And then to walk back out and like, and I know that like you're watching like a, a TV show within a movie, but like right. his delivery as like that. Sure. Fuck, I can't remember the, yeah, the I can't bad remember guy's name, name. but... Oh, um, it's, it's not Dakota because he says Dakota, but it's like, like they.
0: Right. They, 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 whatever. they code, they code how however he like, yeah, says it. Right, like yeah.
1: the thing with like the little girl and the delivery yeah, and it's sure, just, oh, it's that, so yeah. fantastic. Right. Yeah. So
0: good. And, 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 and then, then like, and the, and the look of pride on his face when like she tells him it's the best right, acting she's then, ever like, seen. The
1: relief, like the guy, right. the director comes up to him like, you know, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And you just see like this wave of like relief and pride yeah. and like humility like sweep over him, and then yeah. i don't know it's just it's so
0: good right and it's like and, and and it's the ironic thing there i guess is the idea is that it was pride that was holding him back right because he wanted to keep being rick dalden like in fact when that director comes in is like i think you can really do this and it's so supportive of him but we're gonna put you in this makeup and this mustache and like new hair and he's like well how are they gonna know it's me and he always wants to still be him in all these roles and he's like well that's the point like you know it's like you're going to be somebody different well
1: and again it's why he has like his fucking face on like a (laughs) broadsheet like sitting in his driveway right right so i want to talk about a couple of the things that are like controversial that i've like read in reviews of this yeah yeah um because we've been talking about this movie for a while now yeah um people have complained a lot about the bruce lee scene sure um and Most notably his daughter and protege i think that people are misinterpreting what's happening in that scene agreed so the framing device of so the basic the scene is that um cliff is on set at a movie that rick is working and bruce lee and no it's, i'm sorry it's an episode of um green hornet right because bruce yeah. lee is there as kato sure um and Cliff gets in an altercation with Bruce Lee because Bruce Lee is, like, being a braggart and talking about how he can beat up um, Cassius Clay. Right. And basically, Cliff beats up Bruce Lee. Yeah. And Bruce Lee is an asshole throughout the entire time. And that's what gets Cliff ultimately kicked off the set and kind of blacklisted from working with the stunt director. Yeah. So, on the surface, like, not a flattering portrayal of bruce lee you know kind of a demeaning look yeah. at like this guy that's considered one of the best like martial artists of all time mm-hmm. but the framing device of this scene is cliff who's been told you can't be on set because they don't like you but go fix my antenna i think it blew over in the wind last night right so cliff is on top of like the house in the sun trying to fix this antenna Like he's basically being like a handyman for his boss, who's like also his best friend and sits there and pauses and fixing it and like reflects upon like, why am I not allowed on set? And then after like the scene ends, it comes back to him and he lights a cigarette and like, yeah, I guess that's why, or I guess that makes sense or something like that. And the whole purpose of the scene is that it's the subjective memory of Cliff, justifying to himself why he's on a roof fixing an antenna instead of working at his job, which is as a handyman. Sure. And there's another, there's there's two other scenes. We already talked about DiCaprio, you know, Rick like thinking about himself in The Great Escape Mm -hmm. and like sort of like this is how I would have done it to make himself feel better. And there's a scene where one of the minor like underlying like plot points is that Cliff murdered his wife at some point. And he's basically murdered. As well. She died, right? When he was with her, yes. And he was acquitted of murder, but people suspect that he murdered her. Mm-hmm. And so there's a scene with Pitt and Rebecca Gayhart on a boat. Rebecca Gayhart in like unrecognizable role, um, haranguing him, like while he's drinking, you know, cans of beer and holding a spear gun. And as she's like telling him that he's a waste and she hates him and he's a piece of shit it cuts to black and you're left to not know like what happened. And anytime that it cuts to something like that, where it's like a flashback or a memory, it's always done in a subjective way from the point of view of the person telling it. And in this case, the, when he murders or when she dies, you don't know because it cuts because maybe I, I think it's, I think it's, um, what's his name? Uh, Fuck, why can't I remember his name? Um, Snake Bliskin. Oh, Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, and DiCaprio talking about it happening is when they go back to it. Right. And since neither of them were there and neither of them knows, it's left up to your imagination whether was it an accident because of, like, rough waters that the spear gun just went off or did he shoot her because she was, like, basically, like, emasculating him. Yeah. And so every time it cuts to that, it's always very subjective. And I think that it's...
0: I, I, here's the other thing I'll say about the Bruce Lee scene too <coughs> is there is a scene that you actually see Bruce Lee right later training later
1: Tate, smiling where he's happy and ha- friendly right and they're saying like oh he's so great to work with sure. and right. he's gonna help like Roman like learn like all right. that stuff shows that obviously this is one person's very biased Agreed. interpretation of yeah. one encounter with this man that is not how this man is yeah I agree and it's like it's it's one of my biggest problems with, like, anyone, like, cri- cri- it's one of the reasons why it's hard for me to critique Tarantino on his use of, like, language, particularly, like, racial epithets in movies, because you can't just boil down something to, like, your most base interpretation of what it is. And, like, look, I understand, like, his daughter might feel like it's a bad portrayal of her dad. But it's not real, you know? Like, it's it's fake. It's like the whole movie is like a fiction about one very specific, like, real event that right. alters the course, anyway. So. Right. And it's obvious he loves Bruce Lee. Right.
0: Like, I mean, you don't have Uma Thurman, like, the, the Beatrix dressed up like she
1: is. Right. In, you know, I mean, he, the yellow... he obviously loves. Right. <laughs> and he loves, like, kung fu movies. And sure. He's, right. Like, 100% an aficionado of. Yeah. Like everything from that time period, and right. he's only doing it to show that Cliff has pride and is like un- like has to make himself feel better in order to do like, right. and it shows a lot of psychology on his part because he was a successful stuntman, man and he's basically been right. reduced to sure. a, you know, a right. chauffeur yes. and a yeah, a handyman, and this is right. how he gets by. Like this is right. How he,
0: I mean, and the whole point of. The...
1: So, yes. he's, he's trying so to, humble about it. when it, Like, right. I guess that's why that is. Right. And it, then he like, goes back to doing his job. It's like,
0: it's like, yes. It's like, even if he doesn't remember it exactly the way it, like, really happened because he can't see it, it doesn't matter in the end because he's just like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like, I was kind right. of a dick. Like, he, he just gets it. And, and the other thing, like, is, like, the end of this movie, it's like, you know, the reason you walk away kind of with a smile on your face is because it's not real. Right. And the idea is like, okay, not only just about the tape murder, but it's like those two characters don't continue being successful. Like that's not what happens at the end of that story. She gets murdered in real life, right? Rick Dalton and him, like you know, they don't have this heroic moment where they they stop, like you know, the the Manson gang. No, they split up, right. And like, he you goes know,
1: to being like a marginal actor that's starring in these like spaghetti westerns. Sure, and, whatever, and, and, and
0: Cliff is out doing whatever, you know. Right, living
1: I'm, in a trailer off of a
0: sure. It's like in you know, theater. It's like that's that's the truth of these characters when it comes down to it. Like, you know, yes, Cliff probably has problems with where he ended up in his life. You know, and does he think about those like does he think about those things and make himself feel better in those particular ways? Yeah, probably. You know, I mean, the, the, the
1: joy is the subversion. Right. The subversion that, of your expectations. Right. And also the slight alteration of history that maybe the golden age of Hollywood continued beyond.
0: Right. Which like, obviously didn't happen. Right. It's a, it's this what if. And you come to care for these characters so much because you
1: like them deep down yes.
0: that you want to see them be happy. Right. It's and that's the, only,
1: that's the only way to do it. And that's also another thing that Tarantino... Not to say his movies don't have, quote-unquote, like, happy endings, but they usually have very ambiguous endings as to whether or not, like, anyone was truly, like... You know, I mean, even though the Nazis are beaten at the end of *Inglorious Bastards, everybody's pretty much dead. Sure. This is, like, the one real happy ending that he gives you. This and Beatrix with her daughter.
0: Yes, but there's also this, like, you know, I mean, there's that shot of, like, Beatrix crying, like, that's, like, right at the end, too. Well, I mean, that's also, like, like, her... Because she's had to bottle up her emotions. To she like, ha- I, oh, absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's brilliant to end on that pretty much. But it's like, but it's also like, yeah, it's like, you know, let, letting go, like all that bottled up emotion. But I think there's also crying, there's crying of happiness, there's crying of pain, there's crying of, you know, like she it's, fulfilled her mission. But right. she also lost the love of her life. Right, it's mournful. She killed the love of her right. own too. You know, I mean, it's like, so it's and like Jackie Brown drives it. away. Without, that movie. without
1: Max, um, right? Max Cherry.
0: Yeah, and it's like you know, and it's like this kind of ambiguous ending. Like you know, it's like you want them to get together, kind of. You know, I mean, it's right. like, um, so yeah, I mean, like you know, this this movie ends. Like, so Paul Fiction ends on this upbeat note of them walking out in their goofy fucking clothes out of the diner, and it's upbeat at the except end. Except you but, know that. Except for you know, fucking ben, Vincent Vince Vega is dead right. like sure. the next
1: day. Right. Yeah. The only Ain't, real happy ending in Pulp Fiction is the fact that Butch and um, yeah, whatever her name is, get away. Yeah, yeah, Fe- Fabian. Yeah. yeah, Fabian. They get to um, go down and like live in the tropics and. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I think.
0: So yeah, I so there's the Bruce Lee stuff. There's also the violence against women stuff, right? That's and that's always
1: going to be a problem with Tarantino, and it's yeah, in every one of his movies, there's violence against women committed. Yeah. And, 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 and
0: it's heightened now because of the stuff with Uma Thurman last right, year coming right, out, talking definitely. about him choking her. And I guess, I think it was Diane Kruger also said that he choked her on set. Um, well, also
1: that he made her, like, drive a car without any kind oh, of, Uma, like, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Absolutely. and she almost, like, she got in a serious accident because he forced her into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, like, I mean, Tarantino's version is that he asked permission and, like, about the choking stuff. And that he wanted to do it for the camera. And that it was very clearly delineated, like, you know, look, I'm going to do this for 30 seconds, like, where it's choking, and then we're going to stop and see what we have, and then you can decide if you want to go again or not. And the thing is, he did something very similar, apparently, with Diane Kruger, and Diane Kruger claims that he's 100% correct in his, what happened there between them. So like it's it's you know it's a like, it's one of those things that's up in the air. Who the hell knows? Like you know what happened and whose subjective point of right. view. What uh, it's it's tough. You know I but mean it's, it's it, it
1: can be hard to watch. It's like watching Reservoir Dogs again specifically. Yeah. The use of racial slurs, especially the N word, is yeah. really uncomfortable in that movie. Yeah. And particularly because there's no black actors in it. It's all a right. bunch of like white, you know, actors. Right using that word, like, very loosely. And mm. and I, I texted you this, like, stuff that you found exhilarating when you were, you know, 15, 16 years old, mm. not really, it's a little more tiresome when you're an adult.
0: Yeah. And I, I
1: mm. like, you and I have had this argument a number of times, not argument, but, like, discussion, about whether or not it's appropriate for Tarantino yeah. to appropriate, like, the use of that language. Yes. And... I feel like there's just other ways that he could say things like other and none of it in Once Upon a Time, like aside from the use of the word beaner at one point, like there's almost no like racial slurs yeah. in that movie. Um, But it's prevalent in Hateful Eight. It's prevalent in Django. Sure. It's Oddly, like it, nine or ten it,
0: times in Pulp Fiction. It's not. Uh, um, yeah, no, no, it's not even that much. It's yeah, no, it's about that. Because there's like stuff with English Dave right. or whatever, but it's like which are terms of endearment. But um, with English Dave, but I um, Jackie Brown's about like ten times, yeah. all term, all all used by black actors as terms of endearment. Right. Um, it's like yeah, he has. It's that's what I was saying. It's like a give and take with Tarantino. Are there times like look the most controversial thing to me, and this is the debate that we have. Like I think ultimately when it boils down to it, a lot of times. Is I get people being uncomfortable with the use of that word. I also don't think that the artist has as much social responsibility as some other people do.
1: No, no, no. Listen, I I agree, and I don't think that you should censor art for that like for, just for that reason. Like I think that art needs to be what the artist wants to create. When you start to censor the words that people can say, like it takes away the value of that art. Mm-hmm. But I think there can be some self censorship there. And, and just because sort of. you love, right. you know, Shaft and Dolomite yeah. doesn't mean that you're. And, you know, you cast Samuel L. Jackson and Jamie Foxx in a movie. It doesn't give you carte blanche to use whatever language you want.
0: Sure. I, I, I get
1: that. I mean, the, the thing, is, thing that really. He, he, he thinks he's more down, I've always said, yes, Tarantino thinks he's more down than what he is. But the thing that really bothers me about it, and I don't know really how to articulate this, but I said this to you the other night. There's no jewish slurs and yes. in inglorious bastards
0: i think it's the best point of so like, that
1: discussion we had the, on if your you side, yeah. are unwilling and look i completely understand why you would not want to do that because sure. i think that especially in a movie that tangentially is about the holocaust right you don't want to use a bunch of jewish slurs because then it's just incendiary sure but why refrain and show that restraint in a movie about world war ii and then immediately after make a movie about slavery where there's like 170 uses of the n-word yeah. in that movie you know what i mean like well i hear and here here's
0: you're 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 entirely correct uh, about that it's 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 problematic that that doesn't happen um or maybe the it's the opposite and from your point of view it's problematic that it does happen right. Those other things but it's like um I've always said that, like, I think Tarantino thinks he's, like, you know, has some kind of pass from the black community because of his love of exploitation and stuff like that. But it's, like, I mean, I also know, like, you know, and this was a Sam Jackson interview from a long time ago that I heard, like, that, that he was telling the story, is that, like, Tarantino, like, when his mom was a salesman, like, you know, the, the guy that he went to the movies, like, with, like, for years was this black guy, like, you know, and he's still a teenager, a young teenager at this point, he's going to a, a theater with this black guy that lived in their apartment building, and he would take him to black exploitation movies. Like, he grew up around black people, like, all the time. And he, by self-admission, used that word with those people right. all the time. And it's like, so, despite the fact that he's white, I do think Tarantino, throughout his life, has had a real connection to the black community and he feels that feels that he's allowed to to use as an artist and as kind of a person who right in his mind
1: is an ally and it comes out of his mouth a lot in his movies and listen again like i
0: but I also think he takes that on himself a lot of times when it's... Sure, so white, it's not some other right. white actor that's sure. saying it, so right.
1: he's willing to, like, shoulder right. that burden. I understand sure. that.
0: Mm.
1: Just like but, he's the one that chokes the women
0: on set because he, it's that personal and intense, I think, that it's like he doesn't want anybody else to fuck it up, I think. Now, you could f- twist that and say, like, oh, it's because he's this, sure. you know, Look, whatever. I, again,
1: but, like it's just you and I grew up around like black people and sure. both of us have like a very large, like I work with yeah. for the past decade of my life, I know a predominantly either African American or Hispanic like yeah. workforce sure. is what I've worked with. Right. And we both Don't love use the hop, Right. And we both love like, yeah, like television and movies that are like centered in black culture. And right. neither of us would ever like, use that word loosely. No, he would not. In conversation, because we have respect for the people that we know, and we understand how incendiary that word is. Understood, but he's
0: using it in, 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 in a screenplay. He's using it in an art. And I contend that, at least in his mind, not that I'm going to, I guess I have to speak for him here a little bit, but I, I think he would probably say it. he has valid artistic reasons for doing it. A Majority of the time, Sometimes. now you could question some of those uses because right. I question some of those uses. Do you have to have that word right here, right? But in the aggregate,
1: the is totality really... of his use, it makes sense almost okay. So every time, I apologize because there is one black actor in um Reservoir Dogs, it's the guy that plays the undercover lieutenant. Absolutely, yes, yes. um, yeah. I just remembered like, yeah, like those two like minor scenes. Yeah. Why do you need to use it in that movie? You know, at that point in his career, that's just being edgy or being shocking. I agree. Shocking I agree. And
0: I, I think going back and looking at Reservoir Dogs again, um, I, I agree completely with you um, that that's the case. And um, I I, I see st- as good as it still is as a film, I think, like, you know, just from a filmmaking standpoint, I see it as a student film almost anymore. Like, I think right. that- it's. It it's, it's it's it has it has filmmaking issues, even though at the time it was so damn revolutionary and well, stuff. Right, like, because
1: it was such a like panacea from the things that you were seeing like elsewhere. Sure. On the like, you know, you'd go and like fucking watch Stargate or something, and right. then like the opposite of that is like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Like, well, of course those things are sure. amazing, you know. Right. I
0: mean, but it's like he was still like a, a young filmmaker at that point, and he was sure. bold, I think he was bolder then than he is now
1: you know i mean well he had i don't know that he's ever lost his willingness to take risks i mean i think that he takes like pretty bold risks in every movie i think they're calculated risks now though well only because he knows like what he can do and what he can't and also because he's one of the few people working in hollywood that gets carte blanche and final edit like he can do whatever he wants but but
0: i agree with you that I think Reservoir Dogs and the use of that coming out of white characters' mouths is one of those things that probably is not useful or effective. Right. But I still get, I think, why he's doing it, which is there are characters in that movie that are white that do not use that word. Sure. And that's, I think, the distinction that he's making about, in some ways, it's code for who's a good guy and who's not. So, yeah, so it's, it's Steve
1: Buscemi, yes. it's um, who's, Madsen. Who's likable in that movie. But also, also a really bad guy. Yes. right. It's Chris Penn. You sure. know, these are the people doing right. it. It's not Harvey Keitel. And that's the point So of let's, since I guess we've kind of moved away from yeah. Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a fantastic movie. Maybe my second favorite Tarantino movie and definitely mm-hmm. worth watching. That's my final. Right. I think Harvey those. Keitel's performance in Reservoir Dogs is abysmal. Mm-hmm. And maybe, like, watching it recently, one of the worst performances I've seen that I can't believe I used to like. Hmm. And it's like, the first thing is, is what is, what what, 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 vocal fry, right, is what they call it, fry?
0: Yeah, oh, that's the thing I can't hear that Bledsoe talks about all
1: the time. So Harvey mm-hmm. Keitel... One of the things that I love about Tarantino is the way he writes dialogue, is almost like Shakespearean in the sense that it forces the actors to have a certain cadence. Yes, that hits like a rhythm in your brain where it like makes sense and right. it's like beat poetry almost. Yeah, which Samuel Jackson is the absolute best master. Of. Right, right. With with yes. his dialogue, mm-hmm. Harvey Keitel's and nah, na 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 and na 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 right. na nah, 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 right is so fucking annoying. I know, I know what you mean, and absolutely does not like this dude who's supposed to be the ultimate like badass on this team like sure. the guy that has the most experience right. and has done the most and is like the tough guy almost like it's almost the opposite of his winston wolf character in pulp fiction wolf like, still still wolf still great fucking fantastic Bad performance yeah mm-hmm. because he delivers everything with like a low controlled baritone mm-hmm. and I understand that in reservoir dogs like it's a tense situation yeah um, but it's just It's so bad I and agree Really like the best parts Of Reservoir Dogs Are Steve Buscemi And Michael Madsen Michael Madsen And those yeah. two Nails it Nails it Because Chris Penn Is like histrionic Don't you put the dog In my right, daddy Yeah yeah, yeah Like yeah. terrible Awful. Yeah. Um, Tim Roth's American accent Is
0: <laughs> I still I, I know you have a problem With that accent I still like that performance I think But I uh, I, I know you have a problem With the accent I Yeah I can't stand it Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like... The only thing that makes me cringe, having seen it again, like, in the past couple of years, is uh, is, is, the, is the Hold Me delivery. Makes me cringe a little bit. It's weird. Yeah. It's not even, like, I... Also, Macap! Yeah. Macap! Yeah, yeah, that's another
1: one, yeah. So, yeah, there's a couple of delivery things, but, um... So, I really... It was, it was fun, like, watching these movies again, even though I didn't like yeah. some of them. Um, just to kind of reassess, like, where I am with Tarantino. Right. Overall as a director. Yeah, yeah. And I will still, like, argue that even though I've not liked three of his last four movies, or four of his last five, really, if you want to go back to Death Proof, I still think he's one of the most interesting and vital directors, like, working. And He's a guy no matter what. Even those times when I hadn't watched
0: Django for years right. after it came out, I'm still really keen on what he's doing next. Right,
1: it's compelling.
0: Right. You know, and like yeah. it
1: also I think there's a sense that I I put him in a category with Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson and man, I don't even know who else. I mean, from that generation, you mean? Just in general.
0: I like, mean, it's like he's born, but Guillermo Del Toro is from that generation.
1: See, but the thing is is like I think Del Toro is a little too campy and David commercial. O Russell? Maybe. Um I really think it's just there's three. Yeah. Honestly to me. It's it's the Andersons and Tarantino. Who's another one that you like? Link I like Link Letter, but Link another one who has had such peaks and valleys over the course of his career. Yeah. And I think that Linkletter has made eminently forgettable movies where I don't think that Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, or Quentin Tarantino has ever made a movie that doesn't at least make you think while you're watching it. Sure. Or at least entertain you. Sure. Because Wes Anderson, I mean, his movies are like yeah. fairy tales almost, yeah. but they're always like watchable sure but tarantino is one of the last like living working directors where you feel like you have to go see it in the theater you know right. like because you have to see what boundaries you want to put i i can't imagine not seeing it i've seen every tarantino movie on the big screen yeah and i can't imagine not like sitting there and even if i hate it just like letting yeah. like because e- the hateful eight i think is like i, I really dislike that movie but it still is brilliantly directed. Absolutely. There's some amazing yeah. directorial choices. Yeah. There's some fantastic performances. And it's like, if you dissect that movie, you can find 80% of it is brilliant. But it's like the things that aren't like bring it so far down to me. And I think that, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's a um, Gerard Depardieu movie called The Last Metro that I feel like Yes, we is, talked about this movie, yeah. The last third of Inglorious Bastards is basically like Ripping off that movie mm. And It's like it's still like Tarantino Number one it's the only movie he's ever Shot where it always feels like it's on a set Like you never right. feel like you're actually watching Like a living breathing like Location As the backdrop like mm. that's one of the greatest things About Django is the way he films like You know The, the southwest and The Texas mountains and the plains and the deserts. Like, man, like, that dude has an eye for fucking scenery. Right. But Inglorious Bastards feels like it takes place on, like, a closed set. Like, it feels like a TV show almost. And everyone is such a caricature in that movie. But even that, like, there still are things in it where... Little snippets of dialogue or little things that he does where it's just brilliant. And, like, ultimately... You're compelled to, like, watch the entirety of a Tarantino movie, I think. Right. And I hate, like, I hate Death Proof. I think Death Proof is by far the worst thing he's ever done. But there still are small, compelling moments in that movie. I, there's, being, there's a lot of things I still really like about Death Proof, even
0: though I don't like the, the well, the female characters that you're supposed to root for right. specifically.
1: but. There's other things I don't like in it, but there's still so much I do. And you know the reason that I hate it mostly is because Grindhouse was billed as being like an homage to seventies and eighties, sure. you know, exploitation movies. And I feel like I feel like he misses the point so much mm. by doing what he done I know he's trying to be subversive, and I know he's yeah. like trying to turn the whole stalker becomes the stalked thing on his head and like like granted like that scene with Kurt Russell screaming like oh it's like a grandmother like as he's getting yeah. like ah leave me alone i don't like, know That's, the ending's one of the few things i like about really, it really really funny yeah. and really effective but the build up to that is so pablum and boring and nonsensical in a lot of ways like where it doesn't even matter i like the first half of that movie yeah i i absolutely despise the first half of that really yeah i think that's what i hate the most about it i i think
0: he i i think in that movie he 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 didn't stick the landing because tarantino's woman problem to me is not the violence and all that kind of stuff it's the it's the fact that i really think a lot of times he can't write oh no realistic women He's not very it's like good. Like his at it. women are either written as men, and those women are really good at delivering those lines, or he writes these idealistic women like um like Alabama Whirly. Right. Um or the women that are in Death Proof.
1: Not even idealistic. They're Subjectively.
0: They're idealistic
1: like, in like Only to him. Like an incels, like <laughs> i don't know like tarantino's like a dude that's never touched a boob before, yeah you know? like, i, I he doesn't <laughs> i but yeah. so my problem with death proof is that if you're going to subvert the genre yeah. one of the tropes of the genre is the whores and the annoying bimbos are going to get killed and that's every exploitation movie is right. the virgin is the one that lives the whores are the one that die right and so to paint these women as like and look i'm not saying that i mean ultimately that's like one of the biggest arguments of like like the me too era is that you know a woman doesn't deserve anything just because she acts a certain way or dresses a certain way but then to have them killed because by having them act a certain way and dress a certain way like Mm -hmm. it's almost it's almost not a subversion of Mm -hmm. like an exploitation movie it's almost like a fetishizing of yeah. the tropes of an exploitation movie. Yeah. And then to be like, "Oh, but the women kill him in the end." Like, "Okay, but like you still got to that yeah, point." Yeah, I think by- that's a
0: really good way of say, I mean, I, I, my shorthand for it is that it feels confused, but I think that's a really good way of explaining that confusion. And I think I think those movies coming after that maybe not as much, but have a similar amount of confusion at times. Right. Um totally. They
1: have a confusion like, why- about them. Why does Shoshana have to die at the hands of her potential rapist? I mean, that's the scene. Like, this dude is basically trying to force his will on her. I said that to somebody
0: the other night. and It didn't make sense to me.
1: Like, you kill her? You let him kill her? Sure. Like, it takes away... If she dies, it shouldn't be that way. It takes away... Like, let her die lording over the fact, like, in her burning cinema that she's, like, destroyed the Nazi party. You just completely remove, like the act of heroism by letting this like agreed pitiful creep right take her life sure it's it's just it's unfair and it's yeah. really unfulfilling right and like having like Jennifer Jason Lee who's probably like in my opinion maybe like one of the two best parts of Hateful Eight yes just get her fucking ass kicked for like it's just it, there's some misogyny there that I or maybe not even misogyny but like misplaced and I think what he does is I think he feels that if he pushes a female character to the extreme and then lets that female character come back somehow. It makes them stronger. Right. That words. he's like portraying them as a strong woman. But it's yeah. almost like. I i
0: think he's doing something different with the. I can't remember the character's name. Um, the, the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Um, I well, do think he's trying to do something different with that of making you feel different ways about different characters and the way that they relate sure. to her.
1: And because she's also the villain.
0: Right, And you, but you don't know that, you know, necessarily. Like, you know, they say she is. It's it's but, the
1: backwards element of, like, almost everything he does, where it's, like, you're seeing the comeuppance before right. you know she's the yeah. bad guy, whereas usually sure. you know someone's a bad guy, and then you see the comeuppance.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I think there's... He he kind of, like, doesn't like to talk about it, but it's like, I, I, there, there's definitely a political statement, I think, being made there where he doesn't get into politics that much, but right um you know with the ending of that movie
1: but but one of my big problems yeah. with the way he films things too um and look i'm i'm never going to be one that says that like violent movies cause like violence in real life or sure. violent video games whatever right yeah. like i think there's a complete disconnect between art and entertainment and psychology. Yeah.
0: I would actually argue the opposite most of the time where there's right, no, a that's that's like catharsis your that comes from... The but movie.
1: that doesn't mean that there's not someone that gets off... Sure. Oh, absolutely. ...on yeah. seeing right. Uma Thurman get the shit beat out of her sure. in a movie. Sure. sure. Or some, like, dude sitting in a theater that's like, yeah, like, use that N-word. Like, right. that loves hearing, like... Right. Even though, you know, all the slave drivers get their comeuppance in the end hmm. in Django... Right. There's still a lot... Like, that... D'Artagnan getting like ripped apart by the dogs. Mm-hmm. Fucking brutal. Mm-hmm. And even though it like eventually leads to, you know, Schultz like basically like bringing the catalyst, to the, like the moment to his crisis or whatever, mm-hmm. it still is exploitive like in the moment. Mm-hmm. Now, is it like a well filmed scene? Sure, because Ferentino is amazing. Sure. But is it like also 100% exploitive? Like, sure. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I So. Do you think those problems... I do want to make one caveat about, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and about how I feel about it right now. Is this very possible that could go up, I think, in the next five years for me? Like, in terms of where I have it ranked right now? Yeah. Like, I I, it, I it's. I think it's impossible for me to rank something right now when i just right, seen Right, I want it. to see it again. But it's like, I... I because it took me a while to sit there and say Kill Bill was number one after Pulp Fiction being, like, my top movie of his for so long. Yeah. But it, it took five or six years. But um, where do you... Th- do you think that these questions linger 20 years from now at the end of his career? I really think it depends on... Assume he doesn't retire. Our
1: socio-political climate in 20 years. Like... Yeah it's real difficult to go back and watch a John Ford Western today Mm -hmm. because of the way that native Americans are portrayed. Right. And there was a time where people would have told you that John Ford was one of like the greatest American directors. And I would almost bet that there's no conversation where that name comes up in the last like 15 years. Now, part of that is because the stuff has become antiquated But part of it is also because it's culturally irrelevant. You know, Mm -hmm. like, John Wayne is not the majority of Americans' ideal of what, like, a hero is anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? So Tarantino, maybe? Like, I I can't imagine him ever not being, like, artistically relevant and in conversations, especially when people talk about the 90s and the early 2000s in terms of, you know, like, the driving force behind this change of cinema from, I don't know, fucking Stop her My Mom Will Shoot to like what we have today. Right. Not the shit on like one of your favorite movies of all time. Um, that, That's a joke, by the way.
0: <laughs> it's one of the few movies I ever walked out of. Like,
1: right. I mean, he loves uh, Throw Mama from the Train. I do love Throw Mama. From the I movie. always always confuse it with Stop her My Mom Will Shoot. That's blasphemy. To, to me, they're like, the same movie. No, they're not. Um, One is based on... I know, I know. It's a joke. <laughs> so i don't know like i you still can look back at scorsese and people still love scorsese that's, and that's,
0: but that's what i'm asking you is like do you, do you think that these issues these question marks that are hangover tarantino's filmography some do you <laughs> excuse me do you think that they they linger there down the road
1: the man's weathered the past <clears throat> 15 years and yeah. still is able to make movies you know he hasn't been blacklisted he hasn't been like He's not Persona non grata in Hollywood, right. so I don't think so. I mean, I think, like... Where do you think he ends up, if you had to guess? And
0: I, I'm asking you these questions because it's possible this could be it, like, if you take him at his work. Right. Like, I mean, it's this or one more, um, because he's talking about writing books on film history, writing stage plays. Like right, Anthony he wants Stone. to write
1: a novelization series that sequels to Django. Yeah, right. So it's like, oh, did you see that, um... He gave permission and it got greenlit. that They're doing a Django and Zorro, I did. Yep, movie. yep, yep, yep. That's yeah. actually pretty it. Sounds awesome.
0: the, the the plot synopsis sounds really good.
1: Yeah, I uh, love Zorro too. that would be that's yeah, that, that's like fantastic. an aging Zorro. Yeah, yeah, like
0: in Mexican slaves, like down in Mexico. Yeah, it sounds good. Like
1: so. Anyways, what's your question? Uh,
0: so, right now it's like you know in 2019 when we think about like greats and stuff like that, we have names like Scorsese, Hitchcock, right? You know. Even Ford, Coppola, like, you know, like we have all these names that kind of like, Coppa, you know. Uh,
1: yeah. What? I mean, Tarantino becomes one of those names, obviously, right? Tarantino is the most important director of the past 30 years. Followed by Paul Thomas Anderson? Yes. Okay. 100%.
0: So are those the two that become part of that history of those names? Yes
1: when you Where, look when you look at this era of filmmaking so the latter part of the 20th century yeah. and the beginning of the 21st century mm-hmm. Tarantino i think stands head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of influence and importance and immediacy and daring and technique I agree i mean i don't think i i love paul thomas anderson and yeah. i think i think in some ways paul thomas anderson is maybe as good of if not a better filmmaker than tarantino because i think paul thomas Anderson. as
0: as as it's really hard because it's in the kubrick vein he is
1: because he can pull big things out of smaller moments whereas tarantino this is why i love once upon a time in hollywood so much because this is a movie where tarantino shows that he can do that just as ably yeah As anybody else, he just chooses not to most of the time. He just like instead of being like bombastic, like here's this like generally small movie with these like scenes that just like hit you in the chest, and you're like, oh my god, like this is so amazing. Mm -hmm. But Paul Thomas Anderson, like we we could sit here for like two hours and name like probably like three dozen scenes in a PT Anderson movie Mm -hmm. where it's just like holy shit, like. Mm like sure. a zoom in on a face or like right. a hold of yeah. like watching someone sit on a chair and you're yeah. just like what the fuck like this is so is it that tarantino has the most unique voice and vision
0: oh, yeah. of the generation and even if paul thomas anderson is just as technically proficient
1: quentin tarantino has or cha- more proficient quentin tarantino I mean. has changed the way the dialogue is written and delivered sure across the board like and spawned an entire genre of, I don't know, like counterculture hipster gangster yeah. movies sure. that lasted for like a decade and beyond.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you don't have... Guy Ritchie. Right. Th- this is gonna, this is like a really big stretch, but even like moving beyond film, I don't think you have The Shield or The Wire or any of those things I, no, without... I, I absolutely agree with ...Tarantino that, yeah. allowing the public to accept that things can be vulgar and crass and still be art right and and it's crazy because like he's maybe one of like the least likable like characters in terms of like his actual personality and just like listening to him talk i do not like i i think tarantino is i
0: i don't i don't have that same feeling as you do it's like i i find i can see him he's grading he's grading and egotistical at times but he's also there's I, a lot I appreciate about him. There's buddy, a lot of passion there that I appreciate. well, no, like
1: I love that passion. And again, yeah. like I find him to be a kindred spirit in terms yeah. of like the movies he loves yeah. and the time periods he loves. But man, if I just sit in a room and listen to that nasally whine, oof.
0: yeah. But there's a lot of grace there too. It's like there's a lot of love oh, that comes out of the man as well. Like, Did
1: you see the? Um, where were they? They were at like Comic Con or something, and there was a panel for um, Once Upon a Time. And some woman asked him a question and it was like this really long winded question about like violence towards women and or something like that. And yeah. his answer is, I reject your hypothesis. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then Margaret Roby's just like, uh, yeah, like, has yeah, right, to start uh-huh. talking. Yeah. Oh no, no. It was like, Do you feel like Sharon Tate was not enough yeah, of yeah, like a was, uh, right. it, yeah, stupid like one, yeah. clickbaity, you know uh-huh. Sure. Just trying to get like right. I don't know, that's the problem with like all of film journalism anymore. It's just about like, can I get a headline that'll get me clicks? Sure. But well, I mean
0: not to, not to go off on a tangent here Because we, we need to wrap up probably But it's like like I, I find it like what they do What film reviewers do is very much What I see is happening with things Like the democratic debates So quickly CNN this week During those debates We're limiting them to, to one minute And we're asking them questions like You know um, Senator Warren this person said This thing about your policy How do you feel about that Right. and is actively trying to force competition between the people and get them to argue with one another. Right. And so you can to, get Cory Booker so, to so have you can his. Get a,
1: and limit it to one minute so you can get a soundbite. Right. So you can have Cory Booker tell Joe Biden needs like stirring the Kool-Aid doesn't know the flavor. Right. So right. then that's your soundbite for sure. that minute. Absolutely. And then Cory Booker coming back and saying like, oh, they're trying to pit us against each other. Like, right, Cory Booker Well, Right, yeah. Keep it in your fucking pants. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah, but but I feel the same. Like I feel film. I think all, a lot of journalism
0: is going that direction, and it's like I think film journalism is also going in that direction. Like where it's just becoming about gotcha moments and right. sound bites and all these other things. And I mean, Tarantino, like you said, he's been weathering that for a long time, so he yes. knows how to deal with it. I anymore. mean, since the very beginning, like you yeah. read
1: reviews of Pulp Fiction, and it's. Yeah all the complaints that people
0: have about and 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 my point is like with all that stuff like the violence against women like the 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 racist language all those kind of claims you know and that that kind of stuff is like that guy's shown that he has the ability to evolve over time in terms of statements he's made in the past about things versus today like you know statements that he just makes generally about like he sees a distinction between real life and the screen and right. you know I mean this is a guy Who fucking marches With Black Lives Matters. Like I mean like this And ha, like, has made And it's not about like Cultural like you know Like acceptance Or right. anything like that it's, it's because he believes in it
1: And even beyond that stuff Here's a man that's made Nine movies Most of which are Completely different than Anything else he's ever done mm-hmm. And the only two that are Really even similar in tone Are Django and Hateful Eight Right and only because Hateful Eight was, like, a scene in Django that, like, sure. extrapolated out into, like, right. a much broader thing. Absolutely. Yeah. But, like, everything is... History is always going to be problematic, and I don't think you can ever look back and look at any, you know, historical figure in, like, the hindsight... Like, whatever, like, the benefit of hindsight, unless you look with rose-colored glasses and not find things that are problematic. And, like, are there problematic things about Tarantino? Sure. But is there anybody else that's, like, sparked, I don't know, like, the imagination yeah. and just been, like, so artistically relevant for as long? Like, I right. don't think so. No. Even no. somebody like Scorsese. Like, Tarantino's never made Kundun or Age right. of Innocence. You know what I sure. mean? Like, he's yeah. never, like, made me, like, fall asleep during a movie because it was yeah. so
0: boring. Tarantino is not, like, putting movies on Netflix and de-aging De Niro and Pesci and Pacino. You know? Yeah. Um... Hmm. So, um, yeah, and I think I think if he calls it quits here, it's fine. If he wants to make another one, it's right. fine. But I think he has the right idea of calling it quits, honestly. Not to say that he can't come back 10 years down the road and make a movie. Man, I just
1: want one more. Like, but just it's give like, me
0: one more. But it's like, you know, like that's fine if he retires and then 10 years down the line comes back. But it's like, he's right in the sense, I think, you know, it's like you want to go out on top. To some degree, why yeah. you still why you're still relevant, and you want to and you don't want to extend yourself to the point you're making twenty movies and and honestly, like and they if, suck.
1: You, if you look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's mm-hmm. the statement of Hollywood. Yes, like when do you fade out and when do you call it quits and agreed. When is enough enough? Sure, you know, and maybe like you you said it and I kind of echoed that sentiment. Like Kill Bill parts one and two, like together, are my favorite Tarantino mm-hmm. movie. Right. But honestly, I think this one might end up being my favorite movie. Yeah, we'll see. Like, I really... I have not felt that... Aside from Fury Road, like, Walking Out of Fury Road and Blade Runner 2046. Those are the other two moments in the past, like, decade where I felt this energized and enraptured with a movie. Like, walking out of it where... Seriously, like, I'm going to go see it next week and I can't fucking wait to go see this movie again. And sit in the theater for almost three hours... Because it doesn't feel like three hours, and I'm just so excited to like watch it with the knowledge of what the ending is, and just yeah. kind of like enjoy it. And I think that's I think that speaks volumes for sure. how I I agree. Like amazing it is.
0: Well, I'm glad that I'm like purged of this because it's like for a week I feel like I've been living with like just thinking about Tarantino. Right. Like now we got to go here. to the
1: bar and you're gonna have everybody talking to you about Tarantino again. Oh Jesus! <laughs> um, At least you will be drunk. But I. But I am glad that we had this conversation. Yeah, it was good. It was really enjoyable. um, I want to have a, like, shit on Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards podcast. (laughs) So I could do that for, like, two and a half hours. Right. Okay. So um,
0: that's our episode for today. If, um, uh, you know, you wanted to follow us on Facebook or like our posts on Facebook, like I've been saying for about a month now um that actually helps us the most you know also leaving reviews or rating us on any kind of podcatcher apps for whatever you use that helps us a lot too um for the next three weeks in a row we'll be doing best of uh the top five movies of 2004 we'll be doing the top five 70 sci-fi films and then we'll be ending the month with our um journey down the road to be horror movies with the year 1987 so that's what we have coming up for the next three weeks in august um Thank you for listening and um, have a good night. Yeah, have a good night. Thank you.